Today on the Arts Report, City Opera Vancouver's unique double bill, one-woman show, Stripes, The Mystery Circus, Vivo's Festival of Signal and Noise, and Delhi to Dublin. Hello and welcome to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM and online citr.ca. Today is May 26, 2010 and I'm your host Adam Janusz. On today's show we'll talk about a one-of-a-kind double bill opera that starts today at the Frederick Wood Theatre at UBC called Sumida Gawa, Curlew River. Also, we'll hear about a one-woman show by local artist Sarah Hayward that will be featured at the New York Fringe Festival in August, but not before uh, her show goes up here in Vancouver on Friday. Vivo Media Arts Centre is putting together a festival of media and sound art this weekend. And Nick Panu has an interview with local band Delhi to Dublin, who just released their new album on May 4th. All right, let's get right to it. I spoke earlier today with Dr. Charles Barber. He's the artistic director of City Opera Vancouver. And as you will hear, he is bursting with enthusiasm and excitement about a first-of-its-kind operatic cross-cultural double bill entitled Sumida Gawa and Curlew River. Oh, yes, Sumida Gawa slash Curlew River. It combines Japanese dance uh, featuring Denise Fujiwara and Western opera to tell the story of a woman's journey across a river in search of her lost child. Here's Dr. Charles Barber, who not only promises an entertaining show, but hopes this Japanese-Western hybrid helps to reflect the modern Vancouver, which is increasingly a hybrid of East and West, culturally and even demographically. By 2040, half of Vancouverites will be of mixed heritage. So here is uh, Dr. Charles Barber. River and Curlew River are two tellings of the very same story. One of them is presented in the form of Japanese buto dance by the extraordinarily gifted Denise Fujiwara, who has come in from Toronto for the purpose. Curlew River is a chamber opera written by Benjamin Britten. And that part of this double bill is being given by City Opera of Vancouver in partnership with UBC's own Department of Theatre and Film and with Blackbird Theatre. The heart of it, though, remains the simple truth. These are two tellings of one story, two great traditions, one great story. And where did the idea come from to do them together? Um, the idea actually originated with Dr. Nora Kelly. Nora is the president of the board of City Opera Vancouver. City Opera is itself a professional chamber opera company. Last year, we gave the British Columbia premiere of an opera called Der Kaiser von Atlantis, the only opera known to have been written in and survived a Nazi concentration camp. And in that particular case, as it happened, my own violin teacher, Paul Kling, was an inmate at Theresienstadt and played in the actual camp orchestra when the work was conceived. He was later shipped to Auschwitz and miraculously survived, and 30 years later told me the story. City Opera is also the company that has commissioned Margaret Atwood's first opera, which is called Pauline, and which is set in Vancouver in March of 1913 
in the last week in the life of Pauline Johnson, a very famous Canadian woman of letters and stage. It will star Judith Forst, and it's our main stage pro uh, production for next season. This year, what we're doing is a Canadian first, uh, starting tonight, in fact. Vancouver is about to see a double bill that Canada has never seen. And in some measure, it's important at another level. Not just is it gorgeous music and the most eloquent dance you have ever seen, but it also speaks to the Vancouver we are becoming. Are the two stories combined? Is it one back-to-back? -back? No, they, they, um, a very good question. Uh, it's a double bill. The first half of the evening stars Denise Fujiwara as the mad woman, and she, through Buto, tells the story, originally known from the 15th century as Sumidagawa. Sumidagawa means literally the Sumida River. Mm -hmm. And then in the second half, uh, City Opera and our partners present the 20th century telling of the very same story, mm -hmm. now called Curlew River. And that's how we do it. There is, however, at the very end, a surprise, which, of course, I will not tell, <laughs> so that your listeners may be themselves surprised, and I believe deeply moved hmm. at the connection between the two tellings. Now, it's never been done like this in Canada before. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, barring that surprise that you can't give away, what can you tell us about the story? Um, the story is, at heart, uh, very, very simple. It is about a woman driven mad by the agony of the loss and the murder of her child. She journeys to seek her child and finds with increasing horror the great likelihood that he has been killed. She comes to a river, the Sumida River. She crosses that river together with others and on the other side finds the body. It's as simple as that, and yet deeply, deeply moving. Mm -hmm. There is one further distinction, uh, if I could add, um, between the two tellings, um, and it's, it's of some consequence, Adam. In the first half, the Japanese element, the woman is unable to achieve, in the Buddhist sense, detachment, uh, what is known as satori. She is unable to find release, and her madness endures. In the second half, what Benjamin Britten does is tell it from the Christian or the Western perspective. And in the second half, once again, the madwoman having found her child murdered, the spirit of the child actually appears and sings to her and tells her, that through the intervening grace of God, they will be together again. And this, of course, is the most signal distinction between the two stories, otherwise identical, and in both regards, uniquely representative of the cultures from which they sprang. And in both regards, from our point of view, one way for each culture to understand the other better and that's, in some measure, what we're up to. Excellent. And the show starts today? It starts today, Wednesday, May 26, 7.30 p.m. at the Freddie Wood Theatre. And may I urge, if any of your listeners want to come, and they really should, consideration of two things. Um, we have, in the role of mad, women, uh, mad woman, mm -hmm. uh, two different people. Denise Fujiwara in the first half, 
Isaiah Bell, also as Mad Woman, in the second half. You may not know their names today. You will certainly know their names tomorrow and will remember them. They are amazing actors. Just amazing. They will break your heart. We had the dress rehearsal at a Freddy last night. Mm-hmm. And we had, you know, people weeping in the audience, as we fully expect tonight. And one further thing, uh, for the sake of the students and faculty and staff at UBC, when you come to the Freddy, starting tonight, we run the 26th, 27th, 28th, and 30th, um, every night at 7.30, uh, Sunday at 2.30. When you come to the Freddy, trust me, wear two pairs of socks. <laughs> Why is that? Because you're going to be blown out of the first pair. <laughs> Excellent. Guaranteed. Excellent. Guaranteed. Excellent. Thanks a lot for uh, for sharing this story with us. Uh, Adam, thanks so much for asking. I hope you come too, and uh, I hope you're not disappointed. It's really something like you've never seen before. There you have it. So uh, Dr. Barber cannot guarantee that you will keep your socks on your feet and uh, cannot be held liable if you lose them in seeing the show. Sumitagawa Curlew River opens tonight at the Frederick Wood Theatre, just steps from the Chan Center at UBC, and that's, um, as you heard, May 26, 27, 28 at 7.30 p.m., and May 30th at 2.30 p.m. Tickets are $40, uh, but with a student ID, they are $26, so uh, just over half price which is pretty good. Tickets are available online at tickets-tonight.ca and in person at Sikora's Classical Records at 432 West Hastings Street. For more information, go to www.cityoperavancouver.com. After the break, performer Sarah Hayward will tell me if it was worth it not having a single director in her one-woman show, Stripes, the musical circus. North by Northeast Music and Film Festival and Conference takes over Toronto once again, June 16th to the 20th. North by Northeast showcases the best new music from around the world across dozens of genres. Rock, hip-hop, punk, country, blues, electronica, singer-songwriter, and more. It's your chance to catch breakout performances from tomorrow's stars. Five days, 50 stages, over 600 bands, plus 35 great music-related films, all for only 50 bucks. Wristbands are now on sale. Also available, full festival passes for North by Northeast industry conferences featuring celebrity interviews and networking sessions. The North by Northeast Music and Film Festival and Conferences, June 16th to the 20th, taking place in the heart of Toronto, Ontario. Visit www.nxne.com for tickets and up-to-the-minute festival information. Sarah Hayward grew up in the Maritimes, where there's a strong tradition of storytelling and singing. It helped her put together a comedy with songs about a woman named Polly Hymnia and a humorously disastrous audition. And I will play for you a little bit of what that sounds like. I will be an intern of the intangible. Listen for the inaudible. Feel the imperceptible. Look for the invisible. Map your imagination, chart your emotional life, sculpt your fears, paint your dreams, diagram the rivers of your veins, locate yourself. 
In our interview, Sarah tells me about the inspiration for the name polyhymnia, the maritime tradition of mummers, or, or is it mumming, mummering? And I ask her about the difficulty of creating a one-woman show without a single director to guide it from start to finish. about Stripes the Mystery Circus. What is it about? Okay, well, it's a one-woman show that I wrote in um, collaboration with Marguerite Whitfoot. And it tells the story of an audition that humorously and touchingly goes awry. Mm. The central character is polyhymnia. Uh, it comes from the Greek muse of song, poly many hymnia songs. Mm. So I, when I was looking for inspiration, uh, I took a solo class with Jerry Trentham, and he said, look to the Greek muses for yeah. inspiration, and so I found okay. the Greek muse of song as I was writing songs at the time. Mm-hmm. It seemed logical. And so it's about an audition that goes awry. Tell me about that. Yeah, so Polyhymne has always wanted to be in the circus, and she reads an ad in the newspaper for auditions, and so she has an idea that she'll audition for all of the parts. Mm -hmm. So it's just about her interpretation. She loosely interprets Mm -hmm. uh, what they're about. So she sort of subverts the idea of traditional circus and substitutes her own acts. And tell me about the the format of the show. It's it's sort of a, a hybrid of many things. Well, there's eight original songs, and then it's sort of strung together with this central character. Mm -hmm. So it's her journey through this audition, Mm -hmm. and sort of going from this people-pleasing, oh my god, I really want this job, to, hey, what is it that I really want to do? And in in the course of the show, she discovers what she really wants to do. And so it's sort of a, it says a, a blend of cabaret, traditional theater, is it play theater, if I can read my Physical. Right. Physical, Physical theater. theater. <laughs> yes, yeah, I worked with Tara Cheyenne Friedenberg, who's a local dancer, actor, one-woman show artist extraordinaire. Mm-hmm. She did a show called Banger, about a 17-year-old headbanger guy. It's just an amazing show. Mm-hmm. So I worked with her on the choreography, so it has quite a strong element of choreography. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, that's a sort of blend. And I worked with Marguerite Whitfoot to create the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I would go to her for vocal coaching. She's an incredible vocal coach. And through telling her stories, at the time I was caring for my parents in Victoria, going back and forth from Vic- Vancouver to Victoria. Mm-hmm. And I would come in bursting with stories, and she would say, okay, just turn up the volume a little, like you're turning up the volume of the radio, and start to sing mm. the stories. And she had the... Um, compositional ability and the ear to hear Mm -hmm. and to record it on the piano and I would record the sessions and go home and Mm -hmm. work on it, bring them back. So that's how we wrote the songs. And tell me a little bit about the, um, I guess, the the rehearsal process. When you're, I'm curious, when you're working on a a one-woman show, um, do you still have a director or are you the director and how do you make that happen in rehearsal? That's been, that's been really tricky. Uh, Marguerite has worked kind of as dramaturge, Mm -hmm. midwife, and contribute it to the writing and uh, the formation. So she's been directing, but mostly it's been a process of coaching. So Marguerite's been coaching, Tara's been coaching. I just started working with Jimmy Tate, who's an incredible director. I'm working with him as a coach. So he's coming in and seeing um, what it is and just giving his suggestions mm-hmm. to, to deepen it or mm-hmm. um, how it could be better. It's a great way for me to get to work with a whole lot of different people mm-hmm. using this kind of vehicle. My college roommate, I went to Acadia uh, with Johanna Mercer, and she's a director. She directed at Shaw, mm-hmm. and she was the first person who I brought in to actually direct it in the beginning when I did the Fringe Circuit in 2006. 
So she comes in periodically to have a look at it and give me some suggestions. But I haven't had one director. I think that is something that, that would be uh, something I would do next time from the beginning, have a director on board that... Could sort of see it from beginning to end? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, Marguerite has acted as that. Uh, so in a way, it's a bit of freedom to get to work with all these different people. Mm -hmm. And also a, a, to get a diversity of opinions. Yeah. yeah. It says that you um, come from a maritime tradition of song stories. Mm -hmm. what, what is that? Mm -hmm. What is that tradition? What do song stories mean? Uh, well, in, in the Maritimes, they had something called mummers. They went door to door singing and they had lots of kitchen party songs. Oh. And a, a lot of them were about the sea or is the coal mines. Is it kind of like year-round carolers, sort of? <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, the mummers actually, I think they would dress with lampshades and things on their heads so they'd come a bit disguised oh. and sort of take over and sing and and then they'd go to the next house. Okay. Um, but they would tell the tales of the people. And so for this play, I sort of unearthed my own personal archaeology to make tales and mm -hmm. stories into songs. Okay, great. Yeah. Thanks a lot for speaking with me. Oh, thank you, Adam. All right. So, Stripes, the Mystery Circus is at the Moberly Arts and Culture Centre. That's on Prince Albert Street in Vancouver, one block east of Fraser Street, south of 59th. So about Fraser and 59th Street. And it starts on Friday, May 28th at 8pm. And will run through the weekend until um, Sunday. Uh, on Sunday there is a 2pm show. Uh, tickets are $15 for adults and $10 for students. Tickets are available at the door. Uh, if you want more information, the best place to go is um, Sarah's website, which is www.sarahayward.ca. Sarah with an H at the end, hayward.ca. All right, we will be right back. The Seed Productions Foundation is proud to present An Evening with Deepak Chopra. On the heels of two new releases, the New York Times best-selling author Deepak Chopra will bring his message of well-being to Vancouver on June the 4th. Dr. Chopra is acknowledged as one of the world's leaders in mind-body medicine and has been described as the poet-prophet of alternative medicine. He will talk about his latest works, Reinventing the Body, Resurrecting the Soul, How to Create a New You, and the Ultimate Happiness Prescription, The Seven Keys to Joy and Enlightenment. An Evening with Deepak Chopra at the Queen Elizabeth Theatre, Friday, June 4th at 7.30pm. Tickets online at ticketmaster.ca. And when we experience that, you'll be extremely ecstatic. You'll be extremely joyful because this is the real you. And that he calls Nirvana. All right, and we're back on the Arts Report, and it's CITR 101.9 FM. Describing visual art is interesting. It amazes me because the words that people choose to describe something that is visual, physical, and oral is, is a tough job, I think. For example, Vivo Media Arts Center's 10th annual Signal and Noise Media Arts Festival starts tomorrow and will feature over 30 artists doing contemporary media and sound art, projections, performances, and installations. But 
how to describe the art in words. How do you describe what it looks like and sounds like? And most importantly, how do you describe what it all means? Vivo's Amy Lynn Kazimirchik describes the art uh, and its purpose thus, quote, Work that complicates and disrupts formal and conceptual interpretations of media. End quote. Very interesting. And she describes the art saying it's about, quote, engaging sensory perception, contriving linguistic and nonverbal communication, and representing and positioning subjectivities. And see, that, that fascinates me. I think that's, that's beautiful. To me, that description alone is like a work of art. I think, it's, I think it's like poetry by itself. So, yeah. So here we're going to speak to um, Amy Lynn Kasimirchik. And uh, we had a conversation about the Signal and Noise Media Arts Festival. Um, and she gives me a couple examples of the art and explains what it means to disrupt formal and conceptual interpretations of media. And uh, we explore the idea that we should do away with masterpieces. No more masterpieces. Let's hear that. Signal and Noise Media Arts Festival is its now in its 10th year. And when it started 10 years ago, really what it was, um, kind of the gap it was trying to fill or maybe some of the questions it was trying to address was this sort of um, emergence of sound art, of sound performance art, of installation, of considering sound and noise and music as its own um, sort of independent art form. And what that what that meant within a video production center, which Vivo Media Arts is primarily a video production center, um, where I would say maybe the image is given priority. Mm-hmm. So what are people doing with the sound oral elements of their work? Um, and so as it's evolved over the last number of years, that's... It's kind of also evolved with a number of sort of digital technologies that have emerged that are now looking at the ways in which um, sound-based arts and um, visual media-based arts can be explored um, within sort of more of um, a performance sphere or like a live interactive sphere, as well as more kind of sculptural um, installation-based works, uh, as well as just single-channel works or even some, some types of sort of immersive spaces. And so I guess what Signal and Noise tries to do is it, it keeps its it keeps its sort of mandate or its vision quite broad so that um, it's open to interpretation to the people who are submitting work to the festival. Mm-hmm. And so what, what, what we come out of is um, when we sit with a jury and we select the work, what we get is this really broad range of every people who are doing works. Like this year, for example, um, we have an artist coming from Boston. He's here working in the other room right now who um, will be playing a piano with a typewriter that's um, hooked up with these electronic solenoids. Um, reactors. Um, so that's kind of more of, a, I would say, sort of an electronic arts intervention in a um, kind of music performance medium. And then on sort of another side of the spectrum, we have someone doing a live performance composition with a series of YouTube videos that he will be effectively DJing on YouTube. So these kind of ranges of the ways in which people are kind of experimenting with um, different forms of media art and kind of, I would say, maybe their sort of interrelation or sort of maybe their collaboration, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. the idea is to, is to explore all the different ways that, that audio, to explore it in an artistic way, and, and that could be 
defined as broadly as as possible. Is that, is that yeah? Right? Well, I guess it's not. I mean, it's not audio specifically. I mean, what's interesting about the title is, you know, of course, you have signal and noise, mm-hmm. which is, um, you know, those are kind of specific audio terms. But you could also interpret it as a video signal, um, the video signal, and then the, either the noise of video, which would be the intended image, and then potentially the noise, like either the dropout, the digital dropout, or the television snow, or sort of the digital artifact that isn't intended to be there. So I think that those kind of terms refer to sort of both those elements. And, um, you know, uh, and and visual work, visual media art is, uh, you know, given... Um, quite a platform within the festival as well. There's a number of single-channel videos. We have three video installations, um, which are projection-based. One's a dual-channel monitor-based, and those are in their own little um, kind of gallery rooms that are um, set apart from the actual performance theater area. It also says that uh, a goal is it has to do with complicating and disrupting formal conceptual interpretations of media. What does that mean? When I was writing that description, one of the things I was thinking about was the ways in which in in sort of our, our daily lives or in our sort of media culture, um, what are the ways in which we experience it? You know, we have these forms. We understand the form of television. We understand the broadcast form of, you know, either the 20-minute uh, sitcom or the 90-minute the, the movie, or we understand we have all these expectations of um, also sort of media broadcast standards. You know, we have a standard for how things are broadcast on the internet. We have a standard for what radio is like. We have, and so these are languages. I would consider these media languages, mm-hmm. um, and they form expectations in our minds of what we expect these mediums to be, or how we, what we, what we perceive as being legitimate. And so what I believe these are, a lot of these artists are doing is they're intervening in those, um, I guess, those vernaculars in a way, and saying, and sort of through a disruption, kind of revealing the medium, I guess, maybe the same way you would, you know, you would look at when, like, uh, uh, abstraction sort of confronted formal or, or realistic painting, the way in which we said, okay, well, you know, a painting is really about, um, you know, representing something realistically, and then abstraction would say, like, well, no, actually, it's not really about that. And, of course, photography intervened in that quite heavily. So I guess I think we're at a point now where because um, forms of media technology are really accessible and, you know, we can kind of leave the legitimate representations up to people with millions of dollars and huge um, broadcast industries and otherwise. And so artists are really freed up in a way to say, like, okay, well, how can we hack these technologies, basically, Hmm. and these languages? And how can we, you know, very much, I would say it's very much akin to something like, um, you know, tagging graffiti or sort of uh, slang culture in a way. Mm. Yeah. Does the festival have a theme? Um, You know, that's been something that's been really interesting about the history of Signal and Noise is that it it has historically had a theme. And and what we've done this year is the festival itself has um, uh, a loose theme around this theory um, or idea represented by Antonin Artaud, who is a French um, uh, playwright and, I would say, philosopher around culture, um, who was writing at the turn, kind of the beginning, uh, mid, kind of 20s to 50s in... Um, in France, 1920s to 1950s, and he he wrote a book called The Theater and Its Double, 
which is all about this sort of reflection on or critique of culture and theater in contemporary society at that time. And he, he sort of coined a term or coined a, I guess maybe, what would I say, a politic around um, the idea of no more masterpieces, whereas he was sort of calling for an end to to the creation of masterpieces in art. And his really, his idea was that, um, you know, that um, as long as we keep depending on sort of the authority of the masterpiece, what we do is we're distancing ourselves from um, a, what would I say, like, from being present, from being in the moment of our mm-hmm. culture, and from being in our own politic, and in being in our own poetry, and being in our own culture, in a way. That's what I'm sort of visualizing with kind of wrapping the festival around this kind of quote, is just a contemplation of, 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 of what it is now, and of, of what this, particularly in, in terms of the way that media culture is evolving, how does this idea of the masterpiece, or the artist, or even the idea of the auteur, become um, reflected in these works. But there's, each, each program has its own theme within that, that I would say maybe kind of bounces off that in discreet ways, maybe. Great. Well, thanks very much. Yeah, thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Okay, thanks, Adam. And that was Amy Lynn Kazimerchik. Fascinating stuff. And I'm really quite intrigued by the idea that masterpieces can be a kind of, that they can be kind of tyrannical and a threat because they sort of distract from experiencing a, a diversity of works, a democracy of works, if you will. Uh, not all necessarily masterpieces, but but valuable still. Um, now, the festival runs from May 27th till the 30th, and there are installations, exhibitions, and for more info, you can go to, you should probably go to the website, which is signalandnoise.ca, signalandnoise.ca, and there you can get uh, schedule, uh, program, and ticket information. And uh, we will be right back. And after the break, uh, we will hear Nick Panu do an interview with Delhi to Dublin. So stay with us. The Calgary Folk Music Festival, a dreamlike balance of urban and bucolic, friendly and far out, super fly and earthy. Pioneering musical godfathers and grandmothers, plus rebels, romantics, and revolutionaries of the current decade. July 22nd to 25th at Prince's Island Park. Let the music take you around the world. The Calgary Folk Music Festival. Visit calgaryfolkfest.com. All right, last but not least, Nick Panu talked with Delhi to Dublin on the release of their newest album, Planet Electric. This five-member Vancouver-based band started as a live collaboration put together in 2006 as a one-off performance piece for a club night called Delhi to Dublin. It was so well received that requests for additional performances led to the official formation of Delhi to Dublin. Here's Nick Panu. Right now we are standing here with two members of Delhi to Dublin, the band, uh, the winners, recipients of the Western Canadian Music Award, and uh, have been creating a lot of buzz in uh, all the major festivals in North America and abroad. We're standing here with a guitar player. Andrew Kim. And, and lead vocals. Uh, Sanjay Saran, what's up? 
How are you guys doing? And thanks for taking the time to uh, do this interview. It's, it's a real pleasure to get this uh, second opportunity to um, interview members of the band. I was able to talk to Turin Dubla, an electronics player for the band. New album is out, Planet Electric. Um, how long was uh, this album uh, in, in the works? From start to finish, it took about two years to get this album going. Uh, from the f- time we first started writing, but uh, last year, early last year in February, we took uh, a writing retreat for about 10 days where we we kind of, you know, went through the tracks that we'd already started writing and then really tried to focus on, on the few that we, you know, that were really already becoming songs and then, and then write some new stuff. So it was one year, you know, in the works, uh, like pretty hard, but some of the tracks are about two years in the making for sure. And, and you guys took a totally different approach to this album. Uh, it was like you went into, a, like you said, a, a writing retreat for seven days and nights. You wrote. And then uh, even before the album was uh, processed uh, and uh, went through the production stages, tested the music out uh, before the audiences. So you took a totally different approach to this album. Right. I mean, anytime we kind of come up with something new, like Andrew might come up with some sort of riff and Kaitami might, you know, play have some or, or the other way around, you know, and we'll just start playing it and we kind of develop our songs as we go live and if they work they work and then we continue to develop them and if they don't work we cut them or we change them or something so all or anything that we've ever done new or fresh is always played in front of an audience first and sometimes we're like hey this is the first time we're doing this track and we'll just try it out and i mean you know they'll be a little bit forgiving because it's the first time or something but it works out to our benefit because we know what works and what doesn't work based on audience reactions yeah, a lot, of, a lot of times when you try it out for the first time, it's in a situation where we haven't actually decided what we're actually going to do on the song. So it's, it's pretty much like this free-for-all jam with no rehearsals, and it gets pretty unnerving sometimes, but sometimes the really cool, cool moments come out of that. Some have defined this album for uh, Delhi to Dublin as the genre-busting album. But the thing is, um, you have uh, this northern Indian... Uh, Pangra and classical Indian and then uh, Celtic music, but you, you don't like to, it's not like you're setting a new trend, I want to be the spokesman for the, for this style. You really don't feel comfortable being pigeonholed in, in, into a genre, right? Is this album kind of expanding beyond that um, kind of stereotype of Delhi to Dublin that it's just kind of northern, mostly northern Indian folk and uh, Celtic music? Yeah, definitely. I mean, this this album is, you know, it, it's it is doing all those things. It is going beyond just Punjabi, just Celtic music. But I, I, the intention and our issue with the genres is that we don't make the music to to be go beyond these these genres. It's the music that we're creating can't be put into a genre. So I think there's a there's a, there is a bit of a difference there. And by you know trying to um, or, or trying to force that issue, it, it wouldn't work. So it's kind of like you know, whatever we're making, where where do you put it in? Is it is it is it electronica? Is it folk music? Is it world music? Is it break beats? Is it drum and bass? You know, I mean, we touch on everything. I mean, Andrew and Kyle are very influenced by metal music as well. Kyle's really into drum and bass. Um, so what do you where do you put it? Where do you classify it? And it's kind of that that's kind of the issue that kind of constantly comes up. It's a it's a question that we constantly have. And I mean, Andrew's. Get, I feel some of Andrew's best guitar solos are on an African uh, feel, and I really enjoy when he plays plays those. So, 
you know, where do we fit in? But it's not intentional. It's just whatever our influences are and what we're creating is this genre, quote-unquote, genre-busting music. And it's, and I think that's kind of the way of the future because, you know, we've we built up these these genres, but then what, what do they really mean? But on, a, on the same note, I'm not here to sit and just discuss the this and, and always, you know, get into forums about what this music is. I'm just creating, you know, we're just creating music that we we want to create and want to dance to. So call it whatever you want, you know. You can, you can call this XYZ form of music and I don't care, really. So, yeah. You know, with all of our different influences, it just sort of forms into just something totally new. And, and because we're all from such different musical influences, like it just sort of naturally forms into something that's really weird that people haven't really heard before. And, and uh, you know, it gets defined as genre busting or world music or whatever, but it's just really us 